had to get used to the sounds of heads getting smashed against toilets, bodies getting thrown around, seeing people's teeth fly out. I saw a guy with his leg pointing in the completely wrong direction. I've gone from being a nobody in a chemical manufacturing town to throwing parties for 10,000 people with my own arm to the teeth security team, like a little army. I'm in the stock brokerage, get a call from my aunt. Peter's place is headline news. Someone's been shot dead. Get your ass up there. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the podcast in partnership with Najahi Events. And oh, my God, have we got a guest for you today. I've been following this guy's story for some time because he was a stockbroker in financial services just like me. But this stockbroker got caught up in the illegal world of drugs. And once he did, there was no getting out. Sean Atwood thought he was going to be facing up to 200 years in prison, but luckily only served six in America. His story is absolutely breathtaking. As the interview takes place, you will notice that it's like watching a movie. I can't wait to share this with you. Please enjoy it. Let's cue the music for Sean Atwood. Megaverse, the digital frontier of tomorrow. Megaverse stands at the cutting edge intersection of technology and imagination. It's a virtual realm where the limitless expanse of the digital universe unfolds, offering users unparalleled experiences and interactions. With its advanced metaverse platform, users can craft unique avatars, forge connections, and even establish their own digital estates. It's more than just virtual reality. Megaverse is an expansive digital civilization teeming with opportunities for both individuals and brands. From immersive concerts to revolutionary retail experiences, Megaverse is redefining the way we engage with the digital world. As we stand on the brink of a new era where the lines between our physical reality and the digital realm blur, Megaverse is poised to lead the charge in this brave new world. Dive in and discover a universe without bounds. This really is the future. And lastly, thank you to Najahi Events, who have been sponsoring us now on the podcast for over a year. Najahi bring motivational speakers to the region to help inspire, educate and motivate you to achieve better success and live a better life. Sean, thank you so much for coming to join us on the show. You're welcome, Spencer. Thanks for inviting me. You're a fellow podcaster as well, so I'm sure there's a there's different... You don't want to be critical of what I do as we go through this today. Like, why are you doing it like that? <laughs> How did you get into podcasting? Was that something that, that, that you fell into? Or is it something that you were... What happened was I ended up in maximum security jail in Arizona. This is 2004. Mm-hmm. And we had an idea to start smuggling my writing out of the jail and putting it online. This was when blogs were just first starting. So this was a jail where dead rats were in the food, cockroaches were all over us at night times, guards were murdering mentally ill prisoners, a neo-Nazi gang called the Aryan Brotherhood decided who lived and died. So it was quite extreme. Not saying jail should be a holiday camp, but this was extreme. And um, I discussed it with my family and my aunt who was visiting me behind the plexiglass, I hid what I wrote in, I did it with a tiny little pencil sharpener on the door, hid what I wrote in like legal paperwork letters. The visitation officer took that off me when I shuffled up, they're all cuffed up. It's like 
in Max, it's like Hannibal Lecter meets Clarice Starling. You know, you're cuffed to a table, there's a phone, and you can see the other person. So the visitation officer took that, handed it to my aunt at the end of the visit. She carried it out, typed it up, emailed it to my family in the Northwest. And that's how the blog John's Jail Journal started in 2004. And then the YouTube uh, channel started in 2007. Wow. Okay, yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. Okay, let's go back to the beginning. You're a man from the north. <laughs> okay, I know you've got a really interesting story. The first time I saw you was on, um, what's the name of that show? Banged Up Abroad in the UK. Banged Up Abroad. That was the yeah. first time. And I and I found, I resonated with parts of your story, probably because mm. we're of a similar age and that kind mm. of, people that were around in that kind of ecstasy era <laughs> and that rave era um, either had no idea what was going on or, yeah. or a part of driving around listening to Centre Force Radio in London and trying to find out what warehouse was going to be available at midnight and watching the convoy FDM 25 to get there. Yeah. Um, and so whenever I've got one of the stories yeah. like that, I'm just, oh, I, it's almost like I live it a little while while the story's being told. And we got the music. <laughs> <laughs> For those of you that are listening right now, the studio next to us has got a bit of a backbeat going on. So uh, <laughs> hopefully, maybe that, maybe, no, 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 we'll use it as sound effects. It's like, no, we've, got the, we've got the beat, we've got the beat. <laughs> Don't you want my love? <laughs> so tell us, you're from, you're from up north. And you ended up in a maximum security jail in the United States. What a wild ride. So what kind of kid were you like? So, unnaturally, I got into the stock market at 14. And my economics teacher saw I had an aptitude and started to give me classes on my own. You'd get the Financial Times out, explain all the numbers. 16, I borrowed money from my nan, uh, 50 quid, and double it in BT shares. So I'm hooked right away. <laughs> Go down witness library, order dozens of books on the stock market. Now, at the top of my town witness, there's a quarry called Pexhill Quarry. And there was a tree overlooking the quarry that we call the thinking tree. So as kids, we go and sit on the branches of the thinking tree and have a conversation like, you know, what are you going to do when you grow up? The two people I was primarily with on the thinking tree was my best mate from childhood. He's dead now, wild man. And his cousin, Hammy. Now, well, man, we'd ask him, what's he going to do when he grows up? And he's like, I'm going to prison. I've got red dots in my head telling me to hurt people. And he grew so big in his high school, he was picking teachers up and putting them in the rubbish bin. And the teachers were so scared of him, they had him outside raking leaves with the caretaker. So, <laughs> and, and then Hammy had asked me, what are you going to do? And I'm like, I'm going to go to America, make a million in the stock market, fly you guys over, and I'm going to get Wildman a job as a wrestler. He could fight Andre the Giant and Hulk Hogan. This is how I'd idealistic I was at that age. But most of that came true. <laughs> <laughs> so, you, so did you leave school and become a stockbroker? Um, went to uni, did business studies degree, took a year out, Glastonbury, Guru Josh, Adamski. <laughs> do you remember all Adamski, that? Adamski, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Seal, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then I, it was like Wolf of Wall Street after that. This was 91 when I arrived in, in Arizona. Wow. Yeah. And why Arizona? So my family then, if you, if you go back decades, some of them were knocked up by American soldiers, World War II. <laughs> and um, GI Brides, are they called? Yeah. <laughs> Ended up in Chicago. And then the Chicago clan migrated to Arizona. No way. Yeah. And so that's how it happened. That's how it happened. So you're Phoenix, Scottsdale, where were you? 
Yeah, all over. <laughs> <laughs> SWAT team came in Scottsdale. We had a big operation out of Tempe, and I had a headquarters, a nice house um, on a mountain in Tucson. That was the most beautiful place. Yeah. yeah. I've yeah. been over there. It's a nice part of the Gorgeous. world. Gorgeous. Yeah. Okay, so tell us the journey. How did you get there? What was that? What were the steps that you took to get there? What 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 was it? Just I'm going to go on an adventure, or I'm going there to work. I'm going to make this million. What happened? Yeah, I had to be a millionaire by age thirty, or else I was going to kill myself. This is how mercenary I was. I saw Wolf of Wall Street. Greed is good. That was my motto. I go off and do five or six years in the stock market. Wild man goes off and does five or so years in prison. He gets out, and I fly him over. Now, I've gone from my first two years living off cheese and toast and bananas, worried I'm going to run out of money on my student credit cards and I've got to come home, to now being the top producer. We've been the Tony Robbins seminar and all that stuff. And um, I'm grossing half a million here at this point. So I fly Wildman over, get him a place to live near the George and Dragon British pub in central Phoenix, <laughs> thinking he's just going to have a drink with the expats. And everything's going to be plain sailing while I'm getting in this job with Hulk Hogan and wrestling. <laughs> and what happens is, a few weeks into his stay, me and my girlfriend go to his place and a bunch of Mexicans answer the door. I say, where's Peter? And they're like, Peter? Yeah, Peter, he lives here. Peter? There's no Peter here. And then they all pull guns out. So me and my girlfriend start backtracking over the road. Wild man bounces over the road, all smiles. I said, what's happened to your place, Peter? Oh, they're the local crack dealers. They like to move around a lot. So I'm letting them stay in my place. And they're giving me free crack. They're buzzing because I can do a $100 crack rock in one breath. And it goes sizzle, sizzle, tingle, tingle. And it calms down my red dots. And the guy at the back there, he's the leader of them. He's from Colombia. And he wants to invest in the stock market. And I'm like, <laughs> Peter! No, I brought you here to stay out of prison. So anyway, it gets worse. So two or three months into his stay, I'm in the stock brokerage, get a call from my aunt. Peter's place is headline news. Someone's been shot dead. Get your ass up there. I'm like, oh my God, it might be Peter. So I sped up there. And by the time I got there later in the day, um, the news crews, the, the police cars had cleared. There was yellow tape. There was blood on the doorstep and he was inside with a homicide detective. After the homicide detective left, I said, what happened, Peter? And he said that a couple had come over to buy crack from the Mexicans, but they'd moved back over the street. So the female went to go and get the crack. Peter was left with the man. The man had a gun. He said, I'm from England. I've not seen guns before. Can you show me how they work? And the man said, yeah, the safety's on. This is how they work. Pull the trigger and shot himself in the head and fell down dead on his step. What? Yeah. So then Peter moved to the west side in with a big steroid head, Chippendale-looking bouncer and two females. And I signed a check to the rental office. Next day, rental office called me and said that the big bouncer guy, Peter's beat him up and he's got to be evicted. And I said, well, how do you know he's beat him up? He said he was seen running for his life in the middle of the night with plasterboard powder all over his head and face and there's multiple human head-sized holes in the walls. What? So then one of the females he was housed with said, look, my boyfriend in Tempe is behind on the rent. If you can fix that, Peter can live there. Right, fixed. Get Peter in Tempe. And that place then 
was the beginning of the criminal enterprise. It all came out of that. Because he, wherever he went, he invited in all the street people, homeless people, transgender, street walking, sex workers, gangbangers, Russian mafia, Mexican mafia. And I just met everyone through him. <laughs> So you're busy making all this money. You're doing well in the for stock yourself. Market. So there's one, yeah. one life you've got doing that, and then the other life is you're being exposed to all of these different types of criminal community. Yeah. And I'm sure there were massively interesting characters as well when you were meeting them too, yeah? Exactly. Larger than life. Yes. <laughs> like Pulp Fiction. <laughs> we were saying we're living in a movie. And so, and so, so is this just rubbing off on you, or were you slowly starting to see their opportunities? There's a thing called gangsteritis. And if you're a skinny, nerdy business graduate like me, and you've watched too many movies like Pulp Fiction and Scarface, and then suddenly you're out in the mix in Arizona, you get gangsteritis. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You started to be one of one of them, yeah. Well, thinking I'm one of them. I mean, look, look at me, look how soft my hands are. Got pl piano playing fingers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but what it was, I had social anxiety as a teenager. And when I took ecstasy, prior to ecstasy, I wouldn't dance, too self-conscious, wouldn't talk to women. I was nervous going in pubs. Once the rave scene came and I took ecstasy and wouldn't stop dancing and hugging people and telling people my life story all night long. And that became my crutch because when I finally got therapy, I had to go inside myself and address the root causes of my drug addiction. And it was the social anxiety was a contributing factor. So for over a decade, I was, you know, doing more and more drugs, portraying myself as this wild and crazy party person. But inside, you know, I still had a lot of issues that needed to be addressed. Wow. Yeah. So tell me what happened next. You got, you got gangsteritis. What's the next part of the story? Oh, right. So I'm still a stop rock at this point in the story. So what happens is... We've got this guy called Acid Joey, another one of my close friends who's also dead now. Acid Joey could get us like 50 to 100 pills. And we're just, I'm just showing off. I've got all this money, buying all these pills and giving them away for free. The greed side of it hasn't took over yet. But what we're realizing is they're going for 25 to 30 in the clubs. And we could source them. We found out the locals were getting them out of LA for like $10, something like that. So, right, we're doing an experiment. There could be an arbitrage opportunity. I think I ordered like 1,000 or 500, something like that. And we went out there, two carloads of us. And I hooked up. And we come back and we sold them all in one weekend. I'm thinking, right, do I want to have to be in the office for the 6 o'clock in the morning sales meeting, cold calling, you know, 500 numbers a day? Or do I just want to make money from the party scene and have fun and be this character in a movie? And get really, you know, um, let this gangsteritis just get really out of control. And even my boss, because there was a point where I was counting money out, cash out in my car. My boss's secretary pulls in next to me and she looks over and I'm like, oh shit. And the boss calls me in the office the next day and he's like, Sean, you're at a crossroads in your life right now. You can go up here or you can be a top performer still and slow and steady progress that you've been doing. Build on it. Or you can go down here and he's like looking down there like it's going to be hell. And I chose to go into hell even though there were some early warning signs and one of them was there was two incidents right so in a complex where wild man had situated we now as we're expanding this exy thing i've got multiple apartments working for us so one of them's like got they're selling out of there another one they've got the stash over the weapons and cash 
over here, you know, people have got back. So, and, and over here's an, one we were doing an after party out of. So we're, we're in one we were doing an after party out of. And I'm supplying ecstasy and this ruggedly handsome Mexican-American guy walks in tall. He's got the prison tats and he's supplying the coke and the weed. So we get talking and then a cop walks in and the cop says, I could smell weed from outside, nobody move. And the guy I'm talking to, G-Dog, just whips out a gun, puts it in the cop's face, says the only one who's not leaving is you, motherfucker. Everybody run. I've never seen anything this heavy before in my life. I'm shitting myself. So I run off into the night. We go to an apartment that's occupied by two guys, Fish and Seth. Seth, one of my close friends, he's also dead now. So we go in there and we're discussing whether we should flush our shit because the cops are going to come. It's going to get crazy. Next thing, bam, 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 on the French window and it's G-Dog. He's like, let me in. So we let him in and he schooled us. He's like, turn the lights out, turn the TV out. No one answered the door. If the cops knock on the door, they've not got time to get a warrant. They'll just go to the next house. And um, that's exactly what we did. So we harbored him. And he said to me, Sean, because you and your friends protected me, me and my cousins have got, me and my brothers have got your back. I had no idea what that meant. A couple of months later, he invited me to one of his brother's houses. And we go over to the door. His brother's a much shorter guy. I know her. He's looking up at me like, you know, who the F's this guy? And he hears my accent and he starts buzzing off my accent. He's like, damn, you talk funny. I guess you are from England. Come in and meet my homies. They're probably suspicious about undercover cops because they had the accent. Anyway, I go in. All these massive tattooed Mexican-American gang members. There's weighing scales, there's serious weapons, there's slabs of coke and meth. And I'm like taking all this in and none of them are smiling. They all look like we want to eat this guy. Basically, that was a look in their eyes. One swings a spoonful of coke in my face. It's like, snort this. Look over at Gino. He's like, yeah, snort it. And then I'm like, hold on a minute. That's not an ornament. So they had this thing on top of the biggest TV I've ever seen in my life at that stage. And I thought, right, I've seen one of them before. Oh, yeah, it was in a Rambo movie. They had a rocket propelled grenade launcher on top of the TV. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wow. So I ended up in business with them, and they had my back. And it wasn't until years later when they all got arrested, and they were headline news, and it showed all the mugshots. They were part of the New Mexican Mafia, which was one of the most violent, powerful mafias in Arizona at that time. So I've got two warnings now, that, but I'm, I'm just buzzing off this stuff. Third warning, while I'm still a stockbroker, is I get a call at the brokerage from Fish, who's dealing for me out of that complex. He says, grab well, man. I need you guys help right now. It's urgent. I say, what's up? He says, I can't talk about it on the phone. You just got to come over here. I went looking for well, man, but he was collecting crack debts in central Phoenix for the Colombian. So I couldn't find him. So I go to the house, uh, apartment with Fish, Fish and his girlfriend answer the door. She's crying. I think, right, she's been sexually assaulted. Something's happened here and they want wild man to do him in. So I'm like, what's the matter? What's the matter? And they're just looking at me like speechless. And then I hear this noise. Like, what's that? You better go see. So I go into this other room. And G-Dog's already introduced me to one of his associates who's this older... Mexican-American guy with this stately silver swept back hair. And he's in this room coordinating what was happening. And what was happening was 
there was a group of Mexicans. There was the guy with the silver hair behind them. The Mexicans all had cattle prods. And there was a naked, hog-tied man on the floor with a rockabilly quiff. And when he gave instructions in Spanish, they hit him with the cattle prods. He was gagged, so he couldn't say anything properly. He was just mumbling. But his eyes were terrified. And as the, they electrocuted him, piss was shooting out of his dick. And he was just going like that, going like that. And his quiff was shaking, this rockabilly quiff. Now, again, you know, like I said, I had social anxiety. This isn't my scene. So I'm shitting myself again now, but I'm thinking, I've got to put on a front here because if I look like I'm, I've got a problem with this, they're going to have a problem with me. So I'm looking at the guy with the silver hair like, you know, it looks like you got this one under control. You know, I'll tell Wildman what's going on. I got to get back to the office trying to get out of there. And he's just giving me like a welcome to the family smile. And then on the way out, I'm talking to Fish and his girlfriend. I'm like, what is going on? And they said, what Fish said was, well, you know, like I sell your product and I sell their product. I'm like, yeah. That guy was one of my customers. He watched the place and thought it was empty and broke in. He stole your product. He stole their product. I called you. I called them. And they got here first. And I said, well, what's going to happen? And he said that they've called his roommates and they've told them they need to pay $10,000 or else he's going out to the desert to get buried. And the money I found out was paid. But driving back to the office, that guy's face was haunting me. Wow. Yeah. And then you have to go back to the office and get back on the phone again. Yeah. But Man, I was, I, that but I was must doing, have messed with your head. But, but I was doing crystal meth. What does crystal meth do to you? It makes you feel superhuman. You can just get away with anything and do anything. And my aggression on the phone went from asking for $10,000 deals to $100,000 deals. And my commissions went through the roof on crystal meth. Wow. I was burning myself out. So how long of a period was all of that going on for until the, till the you know, you tell me about the end in a second, but for, give me an idea of how, what year that was started and what year that came all right. to end. So um, I'm in school in the late 80s, finished university about 90, go to America 91, top producing stock broker in my office 96, 97, Wildman comes over at that point and now the criminal enterprise starts peaks uh, around them before the millennia SWAT team comes May 16th 2002 right okay so I'm 32 at that age right okay good so come on then so the, the, you've gone back to work you've got all this stuff going on in your head you've got three warning signs now three yeah. red flags my boss and has so told me and everything and I'm like you know yeah okay you've had these red flags and so you took the advice of the red flags you took them into your heart and you said right I'm not going to behave like this anymore or did you Crystal meth scrambles your decision-making processes <laughs> and tells you, you're Mr. Cool Guy now. You are in a movie like Scarface now. You've seen this guy, you know, on the floor getting tortured. This is the buzz. You're above the law. You're never going to get arrested. And these are the things we were telling ourselves for years, not just at the inception of it. So what I did was just didn't show up for work one day, moved into a new location, started to fly people from the UK and rent houses, cars and build up credit in their names, open bank account in their names, open stock market accounts in their names, and slowly built up this criminal enterprise that ended up with about 200 people working for me, structured like a corporation. Wow. Yeah. And all, all while you're busy doing your job at the same time as well. That's just No, mad. no, I quit. 
Oh, you'd probably quit. Quit 96, 97, I quit. And then the stock market. Stop broken. Ah, so you, okay, so 96, 97, you quit the stock market. And then so you were full-time gangster from then onwards. Full-time gangsteritis. Gangsteritis. I, I never so... claims to be a gangster. <laughs> I'm a nerdy, skinny business guy. Full-time gangster. <laughs> corporate, yeah, yeah. corporate gangster. <laughs> <laughs> so you've got this business going on. But with the amount of revenue that you're making at that time, obviously it's hard to keep track of it all because there's so much of it, yeah? The crazy thing, Spencer, is... Because I was grossing half a million in commission in the stock market and I had all this access to credit in people's names I was bringing over from the UK, I put all that into technology shares and joined the dot-com bubble. They shot up to be worth about two million. I didn't even need to be doing the ecstasy thing. Wow. And this is what people say. It's not about money. Escobar was worth 30 billion. He didn't quit. His brother wanted him to quit and he ended up dead. It's about being a character in the nightlife, and it's ego. My ego was as big as the Grand Canyon. So it's, it's like being a face. Like, a face is a gangster. You keep trying to label me a gangster. <laughs> I've gone from being a nobody in a chemical manufacturing town in the northwest of England, nervous to go in a pub, to throw in parties for 10,000 people with my own arm to the teeth security team, like a little army, with beautiful women, strippers coming up to me all night long. I've married. Uh, she's an intelligent woman. She's a graduate from university, but she's doing lesbian internet porn. I've married her in the Las Vegas Strip, living in a million-dollar house on the side of a mountain. You can't even get up to it because it's a gated, guarded community. It's all ego. I thought greed is good. Money is the meaning of happiness. And now I've made it. But as you see the story arc in all these movies, starts out with the glitz and the glamour and the fun. And then the competition move in and the feds move in and you're doing more drugs and you're getting paranoid. And in my case, Sammy the Bull Gravano's cop um, enterprise moved in and he'd murdered almost two dozen people for the Gambino crime family. His enterprise became my competitors and that's when I entered the dark side of the trajectory. Even if the story ended right now. <laughs> that, it never does. That's enough. It it, never that's does. enough. It's just like, no, People more. don't know when to stop. <laughs> and it, you can't keep the good times going because it's drug-fueled and it's illegal what you're doing. And there are forces of nature that just bring it down. So you're sitting there. It's all happening. You know, you know the competition's coming because you can feel it. The heat's on a little bit. You know the feds are starting to research you. You know that's going on. Okay, so that when that happened, you're like, right, time to get out. There was a slow process towards that. Okay. So I've got the locals locked down, right, in my enterprise. The enterprise came about in the beginning because when I was still a stockbroker, I had this fancy twin-turbo Mazda RX-7. So I'd pull up with my bow surround sound pumping like... Commander Tom out of Germany, that you know, at techno, and in some ghetto uh, rave, and everyone would be looking at me. So the ravers started to call me the Bank of England. That was my nickname. <laughs> then they would come up to me asking to invest in their party ideas. So all these little competing clicks, I incorporated them into my criminal enterprise. Had the locals locked down. Then the steroid head jock characters in like the leopard print shirts started showing up. We're like, who the F are these guys? Now, my wife, like I mentioned, she was doing lesbian and internet porn. She was bisexual. She had a female lover who started to date one of these guys. And through that relationship, 
a sit-down was organized at a bar called Heart Five in Tucson with two of these guys. I have no idea who they are, who they're working for, anything. So I go up there with one of my guys. Um, I have to change people's names for legal reasons. Rossetti, we'll call him. And he's strapped. And I'm like, look, if these guys snatch me, just open up on the motherfuckers, get me out of there. I don't know what the deal is. And on the way up there, um, by the time outside, me and my wife were doing GHB and crystal meth. I've got to pump my bravery up, you know? So me and my wife going first, and our bodyguard slips in behind us. He's watching out. They take me through to a VIP room. There's two guys. There's a shorter, stocky guy called a Spaniard, and there's a six-and-a-half-foot guy, like bodybuilder proper, massive. And the bodybuilder guy just tells everyone to get the fuck out of the room. He's like, get off that sofa and clears the whole room for us. So I'm thinking, shit, you know, they've heard who I am. I'm going to have to do something crazy to try and, like, make them think I'm a bit loco here. And I remember my grandfather, Fred, he always used to grab my leg above the knee and make me jump. So I've got the GHB hitting me. I've got the crystal meth hitting me. I've got the crackling in my head. And we've got to do something crazy. So as we're both all sitting down on the sofa, I grabbed both of the knees. <laughs> and they're looking at me like, what's wrong with this guy? But anyway, they did a nice and nasty routine. So the Spaniard, he's like, Sean, we know you've got a lot of business with the locals. We're getting a good product. Why don't you work with us? I'm like, my product is coming from Holland. I'm getting the beige presses, 100, 125 milligrams of MDMA. We sent, we got the testing kits from Dance Safe. You know, we're getting good stuff. I've got a good reputation. Why would I want to get your colored pills? Big guy jumps off the sofa. Who the fuck do you think you are disrespecting our pills? One call to Sammy the Bull, and we can have you taken out to the desert. And I'm thinking, is this guy a blowhard just dropping that name? Or is this for real? So when I left the, what I, in conclusion, what I said to them was, look, there's enough demand for XC in Arizona for us to coexist. But since you guys came on the scene, your runners are bragging they're the biggest XC barons in the world, going around all flash. We've got all these cops coming into the scene now. We've seen cops, you know, in dark tinted window cars, cameras, taping license plates and all this shit. You've lit the scene up. It's not each other we need to worry about. It's the cops. So there was kind of an uneasy um, note that it was left on. But what happened was an, a different faction of Sammy the Bull Gravano's criminal enterprise enticed my top sales guy, Skinner, to a nightclub in Scottsdale under the pretext of doing a deal. And he had a lot of product on him. They took him into the men's room and smashed his teeth out and took all of his shit. Now, my thing was, you know, I've got this structure in a way where I've got heads of factions and then they deal to middlemen and middlemen to the streets. The heads of the factions is like my protective shield. If that shield ever gets penetrated, I'm next. So it was at that point I made a decision to move from Phoenix to the house on the mountainside in Tucson in the gated, guarded community where I was living with um, my wife. and. Um, yeah, the piece, there was a hit. They put a hit out on me. And when I later met Sammy the Bull's son in prison, he told me that they had a bounty out on me. And it got a strip girl called it in from a gay bar. I was at a gay bar with my crew. And my crew kind of thought the vibe had changed and, and, and recommended that I leave. But this strip girl called it in. 
to Sammy Nabal's son. They jumped in a car armed and they were on the way to the club to kidnap me and hold me for ransom or bury me out in the desert if it wasn't paid. That's what he told me later on in prison. Wow. And that's going to be coming out. We've just done a documentary with Sammy Nabal, a 90-minute one. It's coming out on a major uh, US uh, network with almost 100,000 uh, subs on it um, this summer. Wow. Yeah. Oh, it's, oh, my God. it's like, <laughs> it's, like it's, it's breathtaking listening to this. Like I'm totally, I'm, I'm literally, I've I've been to trailer parks in in Phoenix. So yeah, I, whereabouts? I, so I um, I coached a couple that buy, renovate, and sell trailer parks, mm. and in Phoenix. And I didn't, I didn't know what a trailer park was. I mean, I'm yeah. from England. It's a caravan park, isn't it? You yes. know. And so then I'm, I'm like, how do you make money in that? For goodness' sake, mm. there's a video online that I made where they will go in, they'll buy a trailer park on a, uh, and they used to put signs at traffic lights saying 250 bucks referral if you want to buy, if you introduce us to a lead, basically. Yeah. Anyway, they would buy one for five thousand dollars, turn it over, and off flog it for eighteen thousand dollars or something like that. There's big money in it. I'm like, okay, there's big money, but there's not many trailer parks. Yeah. So, the, so he said, well, there's two hundred trailer parks, mm-hmm. and I'm like, well, how many trailers on a trailer park? He said, there's two hundred trailers on a trailer park. Yeah. I'm like, that's four thousand trailers in Phoenix. He said, that's four thousand trailers in and around Scottsdale, Spence. Mm. And I'm like, you're kidding me. <laughs> and so I, so I got some time when I was over there to go and see all of this kind of stuff mm. and get a feel for it, rather than you know staying at the Marriott and having meetings in a nice <laughs> hotel on a golf course. I got I got a chance to feel it a bit. Mm. So so that and, and and I live in Dubai, and so if there's anywhere in the United States that's similar to Dubai in terms of landscape and feel, oh, then Arizona's the place, yeah, you know. Yeah. So, oh man, it's just like your story's just a nuts. Um, so. You get out of the gay bar, okay? You've got your, your warning now. Mm. Okay, come on. You, you must be going now. It's coming on top. It's coming on top. What happened was the cops took Sammy the Bull's enterprise down a year or so before mine. So I was like, thank you, cops. There goes the competition. And a few things had happened. One of my guys had started going with them as well, double dipping. And he took money from one of my customers and took that money to Sammy the Bulls people, but got pulled over and the Fed seized the money and the customer complained to Wildman. Wildman punched the guy so hard in the face that his tooth got so deeply stuck between two of his knuckles, he had to go to hospital to get it removed. And the nurse said, it's going to need stitches. And Wildman said, no, it's not. And just walked out the hospital and went home and just tidied it up with fishing wire, stitched it himself. Yeah. So that happened. The feds took out the bull. But while man had been getting deported multiple times, the first time he was in the country, he only lasted a few months. The judge classified him as a menace to society. He couldn't be housed anywhere. He was living under a, in, under a tree in a beach park with a stripper like to taser a pussy and a Rambo knife. And they were doing like dying and dashes. And he got, and just madness. And he got deported and banned for life from America for being a menace to society. So I was sending Mission Impossible-style teams of people around the world to keep bringing him back through Canada and Mexico. It was not easy. You were the only person that he didn't he didn't misbehave with. It was almost like that you never got trouble with him yourself. There was moments when I didn't let him know where I was living because he was so out of control. He brought a pimp to my office 
because he wanted to get a gun. And this guy shows up in like a top hat and feathers and golf shoes and purple suit. And Wildman's there. And the secretary at the front of the office goes, you need to get Peter out of here before any of our clients see him. I'm like, why? She goes, you need to come and see. I think he's got a pimp with him. He looks like he's been on crack. And I go up there and I'm like, man, we got to get out of here. And I took him in the elevator. And Wildman was like, I need a Saturday night special, like $100 for a gun. Because he was dating this black stripper in the projects. And he was the only white guy in the projects. And the blacks were yelling at him that he had jungle fever and to get out of the projects. So he wanted to get this gun. And I'm like, I'm not giving you a gun, man. You're too crazy. And you probably just spent it on crack anyway. And I sent them packing. But G-Dog showed up and got him a gun. And they pulled up at a corner store, him and Wildman, in the projects, jumped out. I don't know whether it was a Mac or an AR, opened up on these on the gang members and took off. And Wildman got banned from the projects. Banned from the projects. <laughs> the most dangerous part of Phoenix. Can you believe it? And later on, they said they would kill him in Mexico if he behaved like that. And he ended up cartel running around in military jeeps, calling him Elo Soda Burr because of his fighting style. Man. But what happened was, this was the big one now that caused an acceleration to the downfall. The guy who's got his teeth knocked out, Skinner, my top XT sales guy, I spent a lot of time with him before Wildman come back on another visit. And when Wildman come back, I was spending more time with Wildman. And these are the things that bring things down is like animosities and ego and jealousies. So Skinner got so jealous of me hanging out with Wildman that he started to scheme against me. And one of the things he did when Wildman was back in a deportation facility again, he had Wild Woman's apartment firebombed. So Wildman and Wild Woman were a couple, collectively the wild ones, and she was a tough scouser. And some people more scared of her than him. There was a police report whereby she was seen with a giant metal fan. She's only a tiny woman chasing Wild Woman down the street, trying to whack him with it, saying she was going to hit him. Yeah. So what happened was he schemed to have her place robbed with a firebomb in the hope that she would run outside and need to stash her pills somewhere. And he was going to send some guys in to rescue her and take her into pills and keep her shit. But they didn't know what they were dealing with. So these guys from the south side showed up gangsters and they're like, yeah, you know, we've been sent to take you to safety, get in. And she's like, in a Liverpoolian accent, I don't fucking know you guys from Adam. Do I look like fucking chopped fucking liver to you guys? I ain't going in your fucking car. You guys can fuck off. And they didn't know what to do, so they just left. They left. But later on, we found out that Skinner had been behind the whole thing. So Wildman then, when he found out that, because the firebomb had gone right past her face, it gone through the window. She had a, a mark on her face from it. And his thing then was, the next time he came back to Phoenix, he just wanted, he was on a one track to, to murder Skinner. And Skinner got so scared, he went to the police. We didn't know. Wildman had actually got to the point where he'd found where Skinner lived. And he was in there waiting for Skinner to come home. And one of my friends, associates, a guy called Joey Crack, he walks in. And Wildman just grabbed him. He's been up for days on meth. And he's just, his eyes are like here. Looks like the devil grabs him like he's going to. And Joey Crack later told me, 
and some Italian mafia guys, he was telling us all these stories in prison late, later on, years later, that um, Wildman had every weapon laid out in there, like hammers, knives, golf clubs, just just everything. And he said as Wildman grabbed him, it was like sweat dripping off his ears and his chin, and he just looked, looked, looked like the devil, basically. So Skinner got so scared, he went to the authorities. Now, over the years, 10 people had gone to the authorities, but only Skinner was the inside man who gave him, you know, the full full knowledge. So then they set a wiretap, and there was like 10,000 calls, and that's how we got caught. Wow. Yeah. And where were you when they arrested you? In Scottsdale. And I'd quit a year before because I'd met a woman, fallen in love. She taught me out of it. I was at Scottsdale Community College studying Spanish. I was going to the gym, doing kickboxing, getting my health back. And May 16th, 2002, I was on my computer doing a bit of stock trading, online trading. And there's a knock on the door. Bam, 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 bam. Tempe, please, we've got a warrant. I don't know if it's cops or people who think I'm still in the mix trying to rob me. Go to the window, whole apartment complex completely surrounded. And this door comes off the hinges. I'm screaming at my girlfriend. I'm exercising my right to remain silent, love. I'm exercising my right to remain silent, love. And they grab me and like throw me down the stairs and handcuff me and, and, and take me off in the car. How did you feel? Oh, my goodness. It got progressively worse because I'd planned it whereby if I got arrested, my mates would bail me out. I'd flown people over from the UK and put money in their names. I've got money to get bailed out. More and more people started appearing in the jail that I knew. More and more people were thinking, holy shit. And my right-hand man, when he came in, I knew no one was going to be bailing me out and I was going to have to contact my parents. And that was heartbreaking. Um, I'd planned it so my parents would never find out. Having to call them and let them know over time that I was facing. In the beginning, I had 10 plus charges and 25 to life for serious drug offender status. In the second year, they doubled my charges. They doubled my bail to 1.5 million. And I was facing a maximum of 200 years plus. Wow. Yeah. And you were kept on remand? For 26 months, I fought the case. For 26 months. And that it was that jail that created the interest in my story the most because it was run by a guy called Sheriff Joe Arpaio who prided himself on being America's toughest sheriff and banged up abroad. They researched it, Nat Geo. I think it was 60, about 60 people died in there over five years around the time I was there making the jail with the highest rate of death in America. Wow. Yeah. Okay, so I've been to jail. Which one? For five hours. <laughs> <laughs> so I was I was done for speeding in Vermont years ago mm. when I was racing a car. And they took me to a police station in this little provincial area and the police station closed and they took me to the county lockup. Yeah. I've never been to jail before. I've never been arrested before. And, and I was in there for five hours. And it was frightening. Like for me, and bear in mind, <clears throat> I got a pair of lime green socks on and a pink t-shirt on as I've walked into there. And like, I like, I didn't know, I'm just having a good day out. And I go in there, they strip search me, they put me in this cell with four other people, one's sitting on the toilet, the other one's punching the wall, 
Another one says to me, I've never heard anyone with an English accent before. And I'm like, why are you here? He said, oh, um, my girlfriend was beating me up. And I'm like, what do you mean your girlfriend was beating you up? Why are you here then? Not her. He said, oh, well, I called the police and I forgot I had a warrant for my arrest. <laughs> and so this was my first exposure for those five hours until I was bailed out. And I sat there for five hours on that bed, okay, terrified. And that is nothing, not even not even a fraction of a hair compared to what you went through. So just tell me how you felt when you were arrested and you were taken down because you knew at first that was that was serious, didn't you? Your anxiety goes so high, your heartbeat doesn't slow down for days. Have you ever held like a mouse or a little bird and you felt its heartbeat going uh -huh. like that? Yeah, yeah. So you're lying down on your mattress trying to sleep and your heartbeat is hammering the mattress and you can't sleep for days. That's how scared I was. And gang members would come up to me and say, look, you've got to get that look of shock off your face. But six months later, I've got what's called dead eyes where you've seen so much violence. You're just immune to it. And you know you can't show any emotion because it will get exploited. I was fortunate in that wild man got arrested with me. I'll give you an example. The van from Tempe Police Station to the horseshoe at the Madison Street Jail where they process you. It's got like half male co-defendants of mine and half female, so wild woman's in there as well. The new arrivals are lined up going into the jail. You got people who've been beat up by the cops. You got drunks. You got people on drugs. You got people who've been tasered. Gangbangers, homeless, you name it. And those guys were like heckling some girls who look like they've been, you know, street walking and stuff. And then they see the women who are with us on the van and they all turn around. And as the women are getting off, you know, they're catcalling and saying this and that. And then Wild Woman gets off. I think they were yelling, like, get your tits out and things like that. Now, Wild Man, the two characteristics of Wild Man, when his red dots were kicking in, his other characteristic was one eyebrow would go up like completely vertical and one would stay horizontal, <laughs> but his face would be completely calm. But I knew what that meant. He was about to do something in character with his name. Yeah. So we're all cuffed up. These are all heckling the women. Wildman at this stage, he's been up for days on meth and crack, had no sleep. His eyes are completely bloodshot. He's got like a Viking's beard. Bear in mind when he died two years ago, he was 29 and a half stone and six foot two. Wow. So big. Like this, yeah. He gets to the top step of the van. The redneck guard's like yelling, get down, get your ass over there. And he just doesn't budge. And he puts his Viking's beard up. And he looks at all the men. Like, you lot heckling our women. We're all going to be inside there in a minute. And if any of you lot want a bit of this, I can't wait to have you all. And then he just, for extra effect, he just leaned back. He, he, had, a, he had a knack of... When he laughed, the, with this belly laugh, you could feel it vibrating around. Just, he just leans back with his eyes like that, and he goes, <laughs> if, you think, if you think I won't, just wait till we're inside there in a minute. <laughs> and they're up, they all just shut the fuck up right away. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah, so he was a good guy to get arrested with. <laughs> <laughs> so he's like safety in numbers almost. Safety in fists. Look at the size of these. 
His were like twice the size of mine. And it was just all human uh, teeth scars all the way down his knuckles. I mean, he, he done, before that incarceration, the Hell's Angel invited him to the clubhouse. The cartel were running him around in Mexico. Later on, the Aryan Brotherhood offer him full membership. Um, everywhere he went, you know, he had the respect of all the gangs and all the street people. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay, so you're in jail. Your heart's beating. You know, you're not, okay, you're not on your own, but this is uh, this is serious. Do you go into a state penitentiary straight after? What's the process? No, so we're in we're on in the uh, Maricopa County Jail System now for 26 months. Oh, so you're in the, you're in the county jail. The hard time book is just that 26 months. Prison time comes after that, which is the penitentiary. So this book is just about the 26 months? Just, and that's the hardest core section of the journey because of that jail environment. So I go in there, and they classify me and him as medium in the beginning, but they put him in a different tower. So I'm separate from him now. So I go in, and these skinheads, Hitler, Swazis, lightning bolts, come up to me. Hey, we want a word with you, Wood. Get in that cell over there. So Wood's like white guy. I'm thinking, right, you know, if you don't go in the cell, you're going to get your head smashed in. So I go in the cell, they close the door, I'm trapped. Three of them get in my face. They're like, what are your charges, Wood? Now, I've read my charges. Continuous criminal enterprise, lead, assist in a crime syndicate, conspiracy. I have no idea what this means. You know, I'm new to this. So I say to the AB guys, I have no idea what my charges mean. This is not a good answer. <laughs> now they've got me against the wall. What do you mean you don't know what your charges mean? Are you a chomo? Are you a chomo? I don't even know what a chomo is at this point. So some charges I learned later on are KOS by the gang, chomos, pedophiles, kill on sight. Other charges are SOS, smash on sight, drive-by shootings because women and kids get hit. I pull out my charge sheet. They see him in for drugs. That's acceptable. They see my bond is $750,000. Like, God damn, who'd you guys kill? They're like really impressed because my bail was so high. And I'm like, I didn't kill anyone. We're just raised, you know, blah, blah, blah. And um, then they explain all the rules. So you must take showers or we'll smash you for bad hygiene. Can't go make your friends with the guards or smash you for snitching. Can't sit at the tables of the races. Um, and on and on and on it goes. Then they told me that I stunk because I've been in the processing thing for two days. I stunk. Go and get a shower. And um, but what happened was a guy who came in with me. They thought he was a chomo. So they asked me, "Do I know anything about him?" I said, "I don't know anything about him." But what happened was they got him, didn't they, in the shower? And the gang was beating him, and they left him whimpering in a pool of blood. And one guy's like, "Oh, you didn't smash him good enough, dog." And he goes in, it's just like they're trying, he's trying to crack this guy's head open like it's a coconut until he's unconscious or dead. And when the guard did a security walk, look down, everybody look down, I'm looking out my plexiglass window. And there's not just blood coming out of his head, there's like yellow stuff coming out of his head. And this was just like day three, I think, something like that. Wow. I had to get used to the sounds of heads getting smashed against toilets, bodies getting thrown around, seeing people's teeth fly out. I saw a guy with his leg pointing in the completely wrong direction. There was a mentally old man who wouldn't stop rambling, and I don't know what the gang did to him, but as I walked past him, blood just squirted out the back of his head. 
Um, but because I had so many co-defendants in the jail and the word spread fast that we were one of the biggest groups in the jail and my bouncers were in there with me, the guy called Zach, who was almost seven foot, um, it was more a case of me seeing the violence. Yeah. You're protected from it to some degree. Yeah, yeah. You'll never get away from those sounds in your head, though, and those noises and those smells. With you. They'll stay with you forever. No, and the odd thing is my Bang Up Abroad episode was shown in America a couple of years ago. It's been on repeat. And there's a point in the story where the ABs, the Nazis, get overtaken. Um, the, the Italian mafia end up running the whites in where I'm housed. And one of their enforcers was a guy called Bruno. And Bruno saw my bang up abroad a couple of years ago, got in touch. We've done a few interviews on my channel with Bruno now. And he's going to be flying out here this year. And he, he was talking about Wildman and Joey Crack. The way, what happened was, the guy that was running the Italian Mafia, he was running that whole building. And he said to me, Sean, how about I put some of your co-defendants in your cell with you? Like, move them in. Well, how are you going to do that? Like, don't ask any questions. Who do you want in your cell? Of course, I asked for Wildman, but he couldn't be moved because they'd they put a do not house together. He moved two other of my co-defendants in my cell with me. And once he took over, it was the most pleasant period of it. Like, if the cops were going to raid us, he knew. And he'd have them bring all our shit back. We were all asleep, all locked down at night, 10 at night lockdown. He's outside with the guards smoking, giving them orders. His girlfriend visited him as a lawyer. He got put in the legal room on his own and she was giving him blowjobs. My girlfriend was coming with some of his other crew's girlfriends and they started giving us extra long visits. And when the day they asked me to start working out with them was one of the happiest days of my life because I knew they'd accepted me. So Joey Crack, my co-defendant now is in my cell and he is a feisty New Yorker. He's got this skinny face like an Afghan hound. Eyes always popping out of his head. He's always on meth. And he's telling the Italian mafia guys all these wild man stories every night. And they're laughing their heads off. This was our nightly thing. And they're like, why don't you arrange for us to meet wild man? It's all right, Catholic mass. Get on the back row at Catholic mass. And we're in a 45-man pod. But the head of the Italians knew when the guard was going to announce it. And that was lying up the first 10 so we could go to Catholic mass. So we all get on the back row, Catholic mass. Bruno sat next to me here. Wildman sat next to me here. They meet for the first time. The handshake is so powerful, I almost fly out of my seat. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so they're all buzzing. They finally met Wildman. But they were very religious. And the Catholic Mass, it happened to have this old priest who was talking about his ancient mother who was sick in hospital, and he wanted us all to pray for her. And he starts giving this really sad speech about his mum. And the Italians, I'm looking over and they're crying. They're crying. And then the priest comes and give the, gives the communion. He walks row to row. He comes to us on the back row. Italians are still crying. crying. They take the communion. They promise the priest they're going to pray for the mum. While man, as the priest turns his back to him, spits his communion into his hand, slaps it on his eye like an eye patch, does this pirate thing, and, and, and laughs at everyone in there and says, you're all fucking sinners. You're all going to hell. None of you can bullshit me, motherfucker, you American <laughs> bastards. 
And I'm like, oh my God. And the Italians are looking over at him. Some of them are like shaking their heads. Bruno's laughing his ass off. And as the priest is walking back to the front, well, man, because now the whole, everyone's turning around looking at him. I mean, you've got guys on the front row, got Jesus and Mary tattoos and stuff. Wild man gets the frisbee off his eye, launches it at the priest, communion way for frisbee, goes up in the air like this, and the whole room's heads are like watching it. It almost touched the ceiling. <laughs> it's the priest in the back. And the head of the Italians had this like assistant guy, and he ran out, he ran and grabbed it before the priest could see it and put it in his pocket. <laughs> Yeah, but everyone was like, wow, man's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> but when Bruno got in touch with me, um, he said, yeah, everyone thought wow, man was a maniac, but they all had much love and respect for him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My goodness. What a journey. Mm. This guy from Widness. Yeah. Social anxiety growing up. Well, I'm now sober, living with maniacs and gang members and murderers and... So I've now confronted my social anxiety head on. And this was the best thing that could happen for me, the therapist said. Because when I did get released after six years, the world seemed like a safe place. I didn't have to take drugs to socialize anymore. They said you read a thousand books. Going over six years, yeah. A lot of psychology. Over six years, a thousand books. A lot of psychology and philosophy. What made you get into reading? Was it at the beginning of it? Was it I want to understand myself better and why why I've done this, or was it more about just trying to pass time? What was it at first? In the beginning of it, I was resenting getting caught. No drugs had been found. The lawyer said they missed the boat because I'd quit, but they don't have to catch you with the drugs. All it takes is people to snitch, and. I was hoping we would get out on some kind of glitch. And I, even though I'd quit the importation, I was still sneaking off on the weekends, getting high and leaving my girlfriend in the house, going out with Wildman and G-Dog and these mm -hmm. characters. So if I had got released in that first year, I would have gone back to my drug taking and the nightlife and anything could have happened. Um, but the first books that were given to me, all I ever read prior to the SWAT was finance books. I was obsessed. I thought... Fiction is a waste of time. Yeah. It's frivolous. There's nothing to learn. And someone came in my cell with Brave New World and 1984. Mm -hmm. I'm reading, I'm thinking, I'm reading Brave New World, the totalitarian conditions. This is what I'm in right now. This, this is like extreme, like, you know. And um, in Brave New World, the drug was Soma. And they were all getting high on Soma and having sex. And that was my former life. So we've got Brave New World, my former life, and now here, 1984, I'm here. Wow, this is so interesting. Books are so interesting. And it was from there, it just accelerated. In 2006, I read 268 books, and I told my sister. And she's like, you lucky bastard. People got lives, jobs, relationships, responsibilities. No one could do that unless they were living like a mad monk in a cave. Mm -hmm. I did feel blessed, and I think it was in the second year when I was facing 200 years and I wanted to kill myself. Um, that material persona, that character created the Bank of England, English Sean, that people call me. The longing for that was crushed out of me. I'm facing 200 years. In, I'm in max security now. They've moved me. They've doubled my bail to 1.5 million. They stopped my girlfriend from visiting me. I'm living with the cockroaches. I can't sleep with the cockroaches crawling on me. Um, there's dead rats in the food. I've got bleeding and 
itching, skin infections and bed sores. It looked like I spilled battery acid on my leg. But one of my eyelids was drooping down in. There was yellow pus coming out my eyeball. And then they stopped my girlfriend. I was like, oh, man, I'm facing 200 years. I've got, I'm basically going to spend the rest of my life like this. Might as well just end it. Yeah. I planned to just slash my wrists and bleed out after a guard did a security walk and just laid there with the cockroaches. But I wanted to say goodbye to my family and friends first. What I mean by that was I was allowed seven photos. So I've got the photos of my mom, dad, girlfriend, sister. And I get the photo out of my mom. And I'm like, your mom's going to get a call saying you killed yourself in a foreign prison. And I started crying at that point. I couldn't bear the thought of putting my mom through that. And that's what stopped me from doing it. And after that, because all my... Needs were selfish party needs, getting high, getting my friends high. I never want the party to end. I hadn't been thinking about the needs of other people. And a guy limped into my cell. He's got a steel rod in his leg, screws loose. He's in agony. He's got hepatitis C. He's got syphilis. He's got stomach cancer so advanced he's going to die within a couple of years. And the jail won't give you medical treatment because they want you to die as fast as possible. They get fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 a year per person. They want to get a healthy prisoner on that bunk so they can maximize the profits and not spend it on expensive medical care. So he's telling me this story. And I'm like, holy shit. I was feeling so sorry for myself the other night. I was going to kill myself. And listen to what this guy's going through. There's always somebody worse off. Mm. And I started to teach the Mexicans how to write home in Spanish because they worked out in the countryside. They couldn't read and write properly. I was reading people's legal paperwork. And then the blog started from there as well. I thought, right. I said to a guard, how do you guys get away with this? The dead rats, the cockroaches, and you know, crawling all over us. Uh, guards murdering prisoners. How do you get away with it? And he said, the public has no idea what's going on in here, and they don't give a shit about prisoners. So I've got tiny pencil. I started to write everything down. As I said in the beginning, and my aunt smuggled it out of Max. It was set up as John's Jail Journal because we couldn't put it in my name. My mum was aware of the guards murdering prisoners and the lawsuits we were scared to do it and then when i did get moved over to supermax out of the jail jurisdiction over to the prison jurisdiction the bbc ran it and the guardian ran it the guardian had a front page with cockroach on it and it was all my stories about living with the cockroaches what they published and basically that put me on a whole new path of being an activist and led to the books and completely transforming my life from being a party person, finance guy. Did you find God? I read all the different religious texts within, you know, all that reading I was doing. And what I learned was a lot of the characters are the same in the Torah and the Quran and the Bible and a lot of the stories are the same. I was thinking, whoa, who came first? I think there's been a bit of plagiarism here. <laughs> but... I found that there was good and bad in every in everyone, everything you read. And there's good and bad in everybody I met. And my thing was, what can I take that I can use for me? And I discussed this with a therapist later on in my journey. I did get this therapist and no one would speak to him because they said, if you speak to him, they're going to print the file and use it against you. So he was all mine. <laughs> but he was into Eastern philosophy. And he said, Sean, it's great you're reading all this stuff. Bring me quotes and we'll discuss what you can use in your life. And through that, I just became eclectic. My philosophy became anti-dogmatism. 
and just life affirmation. Nietzsche became one of my favorites. Really? The Stoics, Epictetus, we're disturbed not by what's happening around us, but our thoughts and how we, we can control that. Someone can jump in your face and say, I'm going to kill your family and kill you and blah, blah, blah. And you can be, your amygdala can be triggered and you want to fight that person. Or you can have a circuit breaker in your brain, which is what the therapist put in mind. And I could say to myself, right, I'm not going to engage that person's crazy energy. I'm just going to say thanks for pointing it out and walk away. You know, they're mentally ill or whatever. And, and the people who react the most get picked on the most. That's what I learned in prison. Did you, where you were there, did you read Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl? Oh, I love Viktor Frankl. I read everything he's written. It's one of my favorite yeah. books. Because he said, whatever you're going through, what's the most important is to put meaning into your life. And people who found hobbies and studied and were on a, you know, a positive program, especially with sports, boxing, you're not allowed to do martial arts, but I had a guy teaching me martial arts. Those are the guys who thrived after prison, but sadly it's designed for failure. So approximately 90% were injecting drugs. Over half of them had hepatitis C, which was slowly killing them. And you got the staff bringing the drugs in with the gangs. They give them $50 on the gates, they have a nice day. They know they're not going to get far without getting re-arrested. As soon as they come back, $60,000 a year of taxpayers' money to the prison. It's all by design. It's a big racket on the taxpayers. Wow. But going back to the self-help stuff, yeah, Viktor Frankl, fantastic. Yeah, and that was Auschwitz. Mm. Um, I read a few Auschwitz accounts. The female one about, what was it called? Six Chimneys, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, the Stoics. But I did get obsessed with Nietzsche. Live your life like a work of art. What's the name? Um, Jordan. Oh, what's his name? Peterson. Jordan Peterson. He's a big Nietzsche fan. I'd love to get Jordan on yeah. and talk about Nietzsche. Really big Nietzsche fan. Yeah. And so, were there were there were there books that you read over and over again because they meant so much to you? Yeah, there were Robert Greene's books. Uh huh. And I'm just so blessed to have interviewed him. And. Things like um, Plato, Odysseus, certain books of quotes. Uh, there's a book, Thomas Sells, is it? The Great Quotes. Um, I met a guy called Two Tonys who took me under his wing. He was an Italian mafia, multiple homicide murderer, serving 140 plus years. He'd left the dead bodies of rival gangsters from Arizona to Alaska. If you've not harmed women or kids, you got the most respect in the prison. And I had a game of chess with him. And afterwards he said, I think you're an honest guy. Would you be willing to write my life story? And I did. And he took me on his wing. And one day he came in. He's like, Sean, this is one of my favorite books. Day in the Life of Ivan Donosovich by Alexander Solzhenitsyn. So in the gulag, they're working these guys to death. If you refuse to work, you're dragged to death by a horse, thrown off a cliff, or hung from a tree, and they're losing their digits and their ears and the nose to frostbite. So wherever we were housed, you know, like breakfast cold in Arizona prison, the prisoners are all complaining. Two-tone is like, what's wrong with you guys? Well, Ivan was housed. They were fighting over fish eyeballs in the soup to just try and stay alive. This was the Siberian gulag under Stalin. And he taught me, two Tonys taught me, there's always someone worse yeah. off. And I've rem- he died in 2010 from liver cancer from his own drug taking. 
but the spirit of him has remained on in me. Ivan Donosovich, there's always someone worse off. So, you know, when I do talks to kids and I say, if you've not got a yardstick, think about me with the roaches. But even when you know the roaches, think about someone in the gulag, you're going to feel better about yourself. You know, I've done four interviews today. Mm. You know what it's like when you do a podcast. It's like there's lots of you. You were the last one. Yeah. And just before you came, the guy that owns the studio here said, hey, you getting on. I said, I'm punch drunk, but I'm waiting for this one. I've waited for this one all day. Oh, thank you. And I, and I don't know why I have this, I have this fascination mm. with, with true crime. Um, Posh Pete I had on the podcast. Uh, the, great guy. The, what a sweet guy. Yeah. You know, and, and I lived in South America for a few years in the 90s. I lived in Brazil and I was in Ecuador just um, <clears throat> a couple of years ago climbing. And I'm aware... <coughs> I've been round favelas in Brazil. I've been round Peru and Lima and the dodgy parts. I've had a good look, you know. And uh, the only and I grew up in Nigeria, so I was in Nigeria as a kid. Yeah. So when I went to live in South America, people said, "Be very careful; it's dangerous." And I'm like, uh, "I lived in Nigeria, and by comparison, South America is not dangerous." However, the only place I've been to in South America that felt like Nigeria, Venezuela, mm. Caracas had that same kind of. It, it, everywhere you, it was like over your shoulder, keep you know, keep your wits about you here. Yeah. And I, I'm not talking about in the ghettos. I'm talking about in the posh areas. Wow. It didn't feel safe. Mm-hmm. And I think that that when when I look at all of those experiences, and then posh Pete tells me his journey and what it was like in that hospital, and then he shows me those videos. Yeah. I don't know if you've seen any of those videos. Oh yeah. I mean, cutting people's hearts out while they're still alive and they're all this. They're still kind haunting of stuff. me to this day. Those videos. Okay, so you saw them. Yeah, the beating hearts. Yeah. Yeah. So he showed me. He said to me, I've got this stuff sent through because there was a recent... No, when I interviewed him a couple of years ago, there'd been a recent, um, in the prison, a recent riot. Yeah. And he said, look, if I give you these videos, I'm warning you before you look at them. He said, I'm I'm warning you what they're going to be like. So if you don't want to download them and whatnot, don't. And so I actually sent them to one of my staff. And I'm like, "If if you can watch this then tell me that I can. And she watched it. She said, it's awful. She said, but you you won't get context. You just got to have a look. Just look for a few seconds. Yeah. Anyway. And I kind of like got a lot of empathy about his position. Mm. You know, about, because I understand the mindset. Mm. You know, you're studying classics at Cardiff. You're from Gloucester. Your mates want a bit of weed. You, you know, you sell them a bit of weed. Then it comes, oh, can we get some pills? Oh, before you know it, it starts to, you know, turn bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah. And and as it's turning bigger and bigger and bigger, it's like, okay, well, where do I get it from? Okay, that's a source. You go and do it. It works out. You fly back through Amsterdam and it's worked. And you're like, and mm. and the naive mind doesn't go, I'm very careful here. You know, that's one of my lives I've just had there. Okay, yeah. you hop on a plane two weeks later and you go and do it again, and guess what? You're all set up. Mm-hmm. But I get, I get the mindset of somebody like that. It's real. There's a real innocence to it, and this leans into human behaviors of get rich quick. Mm-hmm. Okay, three things I believe: if you sold them right now, you'd make a fortune. Number one is if you could sell a pill that would help me lose twenty kilos in the next four weeks. Okay, if with that pill existed, okay, you'd sell millions. Okay, everybody wants a million followers. If you sell them, you get a million followers in a week the right way. People want that, or how to get rich quick. Okay, and so everyone's, you know, and, and cryptocurrency was a great example of the human race how they behave among the modern day gold rush, which is exactly what that that has been. Yes. You know, I invested a thousand pounds and it turned into six point five million. And people people don't go how they just go. 
can I give you some money or where, you know, and they, and they make all of the mistakes that people mm. make. But it's naivety wrapped in greed. Yes. You went on this journey. What's interesting about you is that you actually didn't need to make money. No. You actually had a good job. You were, you know, I know what these stockbrokers do because I was the cold caller myself when I was young. Mm-hmm. You know, I was selling office equipment in London in the city. EC3 was my patch. And I was literally 100 cold calls a day. <laughs> so I get it. I get it. And, and we were making great money. It was, it was the hustle that we had then. For you to then go on and do what you do blows my mind. The thought of going to jail for as long as Posh Pete did, I think he was 12 years, and for the six years that you went, six months. You know, the thought of being in these places for six months, let alone six years, frightens the living daylights out of me. And that's because I spent five hours. <laughs> and that, that was just five hours. But it's like when people haven't tasted it, they haven't seen it. They've just seen it on telly, you know, America's toughest prisons or whatever it is. Okay, that it, it doesn't really show you what it feels like. You went in, you got convicted, you did six years. You wrapped yourself in surrounding yourself with decent people as best you could. You fell into the books and... The, the prison intelligence, yeah, they, they called them. <laughs> <laughs> My friends. Tell me what it was like when you told you were going to be coming out. So, I used a lawyer to, referred to me by the New Mexican Mafia. He was their, like, top lawyer. All my money was taken, like I said, but my parents were mortgaged the house got 100 grand to get this guy. And uh, he was a loophole lawyer. So I got sentenced to nine and a half years, of which I had to serve just under six. Loophole, it was called a half-time release for nonviolent uh, f- criminals who are not U- U.S. citizens. And my half-time release date never, ever appeared on the computer while I was in. So when I asked the guards to check, it always showed I wasn't going to get released then. So down to the last phase, um, I thought I wasn't going to get released. Then when it did show up, I was made up, but they kept me in like a day or so longer. And then all your mates like come and hit you up for all your property to leave behind with them. And then you're just on a high. You're just on a high. But it wasn't that straightforward because then I had to go from the prison system to the federal deportation prison system. So I was in a deportation prison for several weeks, and they can't tell you a release date for security purposes. You're literally moved out of the main jail. You're yeah. sent to somewhere else, a holding facility, basically, until yeah. they can get you on a plane. Just me and all Mexicans. And then they did call me and put me on Connor. And I was on Connor for a couple of days. And then they flew me from L.A. to London, to Heathrow, Heathrow, I think, or Gatwick. Yeah. And so you land at Gatwick. I haven't slept for days on a high. My sister, my mum, and my dad are there. There's a video, actually. If you want to use the footage in this, I can send it. We will, we will. I'm all stubbled out, and I'm all bug-eyed. I look like I've come from, like, the killing fields of Bosnia (laughs) or something. I look shell-shocked. And um, they're all hugging, and they're crying. And then in the car... My sister whips out her phone and she goes, have you heard of texting? I'm like, no, what's texting? And she's, she's showing me what texting is. And you never texted before? No. 
Mm-mm. No. Oh, wow. How yeah. bad is that? Yeah. Yeah. Gee, man, <laughs> just think about that. Have you heard of texting? Did you had a phone? Just explain it to me, yeah. Wow. So yeah. when so when when did you land in England? What was the date? December two thousand and seven was when we came. They took me for Indian food. And I'd converted to the Hindu religion in the jail to get vegetarian food. Because freedom of religious expression under under the constitution, you can play the system to get the best food. The most popular food was the Jewish food. So you got like all these Nazis. There were Hitler and Swazis all over them converting to the Jewish religion to get the kosher food. <laughs> Sammy the Bull's son, I think he was in on that at one point. And you had Mexican mafia Jews, Italian mafia Jews. <laughs> so I hadn't eaten the slop, the mystery meat slop, the red death that had the dead rats in it for, I hadn't eaten any meat for years. But my favorite prior to jail was chicken tikka masala. Uh-huh. So we ordered chicken tikka masala. And because of the mystery meat slop known as Red Death, I got the gag reflex and I was like having flashbacks to it. And I've stayed vegetarian to this day. Oh, really? Yeah. Then they drove me to my hometown. And I've been away for 16, 17 years. I thought I was in a dream. It was like it was surreal. I went in a chippy to order chips, curry and rice. And I couldn't understand the Northern accent. Oh, really? They had to bring someone out from the back of the chippy to talk to me very slowly like I was a crazy person. And then I've been in the Sonoran Desert now. So even with sleeping bags and duvets and a beanie on, I'm like freezing cold at night. The dole, they put me on the dole and they were sending me off to like telesales interviews and stuff. And then I'd tell them I got a criminal record. I've been in prison, I won't get the job. And the dole told me to stop telling them you've been in prison or you're never going to get employed. I was getting a bit depressed and I won a short story contest that my mum had entered me in when I was in prison. And I found out in the summer of my release, 2008, and they invited me to read it at the Royal Festival Hall. And I met the Kersler Trust, fantastic people who help prisoners rehabilitate through art. And they put me on their mentorship scheme and a published author came and met me every month and help my writing get up to the level whereby I was able to attract a literary agent and then get published by Random House. So that was a big step for me. How long was that after you'd settled back? My first book, Hard Time, first edition came out in 2010. Uh I thought, right, I'm going to be an author now. I'll be set. Being an author is a long road. Don't get paid for a long time, do you? I was selling £100,000 of books a year because we were doing Waterstones book signings. Not like everyone's lined up at the table. Me and my mum handing leaflets out and putting people in headlocks <laughs> all day long. We were selling 100,000 pounds of books a year and getting the check like two grand every six months. Yeah, so I was on the dole for about five years, but I was building up my blog, my YouTube, writing more books. It became a trilogy with Party Time and Prison Time. And then it was just slow and steady progress. Um, I was really focused on the writing side of it. Even though we had the YouTube channel from 2007, the videos were seldom, but there come a point where I started to transfer everything over into video format and it just started to generate more interest. Mm -hmm. And when I went on True Geordie podcast, shout out to Brian and Lawrence, um, a lot of people started to come over to my channel and I was inspired by them. 
the early interviews they did, like with Nick Yaris mm-hmm. and um, Paul Hannaford with the maggots in his leg. I was inspired by them to just go full on and stop just doing my prison stories now and start to interview other people about their prison stories. Yeah. When you... Is it like when you're in, let's say you're a Marine or something, when you're in the prison and... uh, uh, Not in the prison service, when you're in the prison system and other people you know have been in it and you're having a conversation, is there just like some unwritten words, you know, some unsaid words, you both understand stuff that the rest of the world doesn't understand? Oh, my goodness. I've never been asked that question before. And when I got to the airport and I was deported, I think there was a point where somewhere I was sat where a soldier just come back. I got talking to him and we've both basically come from life and death environments and we were just looking at all the people and saying these people have no idea how lucky they are and how safe they are and how secured they are and what can really happen to people if in the world so I've still got that in me but that gives you a good value system then because you do appreciate the small things I appreciate sleep appreciate a nice meal appreciate spending time with my girlfriend, all the things that are taken away that you took for granted your whole life. You don't understand how valuable they are until they're taken away from you. In lots of our lives, we talk about gratitude. And you know, I w- I've made a documentary on human trafficking. I've seen this mm. the suffering of people in you know, nine-year-old girls forced into prostitution oh, in different parts of the world. Yeah, yeah. made me angry. And, and I, I suffered a bout of depression myself about 10 years ago. And it, it was being exposed to these people that suffered way more than me. And whenever I'm with them now and I see them once a week, it gives me an injection of gratitude. It reminds me of how lucky I am and not to take anything for granted. And it's kind of, when I was younger, gratitude was like some woo-woo word. It was like, you know, you've got to to be grateful. You've got to be grateful. I was like, shut up, you know, what are you talking about? The experience that you've had, that must play a massive role, that word on its own, you know gratitude is part of your bread and butter i did something similar to you we went hard on the epstein case we interviewed victims of epstein and maxwell and we interviewed a lot of similar people annika lucas victims of sra and i thought you know with childhood trauma especially victims of pedophiles being the root cause of crime this needs to be exposed and the whole world will be behind me what is more important than protecting women and kids yeah Dark forces rose up against me to try to wipe me off the face of the earth. I ended up hacked. I ended up losing my YouTube channel twice. I ended up in a police station with a caution. I ended up with people trying to say that I was involved in bizarre activities, the things we were finding out other people about. And on and on and on it went. And also some of the guys I'd helped rise up through the podcasts who had an eye on my subscribers they jumped on a board as well and put out videos to millions of people saying I was a person who's uh, got a foreign conviction for doing that, that kind of crime against children. I was a police informant. I was gay. And uh, a, a one-eyed hitman was on his way to my house one day to get me. So I live streamed it. I put, I'm, I'm waiting for you. And all these viewers jumped on board and he never showed up. And my life got out of control for about a year. If I report on uh, victims of paedophiles now, they have to say at the beginning of the video they're waving their anonymity or I'm going to prison. And if I violate any of the laws around reporting on that, I'm going to prison because I've got this caution. So 
the people I was exposing, the pedophiles I was exposing, they unleashed hellfire on me to try and destroy me because I was exposing people at the top level of government, royal family, politics. And other trolls and competitors jumped on. And it, it was, my life was crazy for like a year or so. But that dark energy of interviewing those people, plus what I was going through, I look back at the videos now and I can see my face, how uptight and stressed I am going through that period of my life. And pedophiles are some of the worst people on the planet. Yeah, so all so this... you you exposing people or digging into stories that have already been opened yeah. made essentially the the powers that be. Who do you think those powers are? Well, I've got to be careful. I know you've got to be careful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Did... Okay, in the Epstein case, if you go after someone like Savile, because we've got a four-hour documentary on Savile. It's called Untouchable. If people want to watch it for free on YouTube. He's dead. You can go after people who are dead all day long. Look at the most powerful people involved in the Epstein case. Mm -hmm. Clinton, Prince Andrew. Mm -hmm. These guys have got like unlimited resources to have anyone taken out wherever they are in the world. I consider myself lucky that I didn't wake up one day and there was a bomb under my car. That's what it got like. I mean, my address was put online. My bank details were put online. All my accounts were hacked. Uh, it, it, I mean, I can only describe a fraction of what happened to you, but these people, pedophiles, have got a lot of lot of support out there. Why? I think because it's so common as you go up into the higher echelons of society, elite deviants. What what are you going to get off on if you're a billionaire and you what? How how can you get your kicks if you you can just do anything you want? Let's cross a line. Let's do what's the most taboo in society. And the sickos out there that'll do it. Because we're seeing all the time. These people are getting exposed all the time. Philip Schofield. Well, we gotta be careful about what we say about him as well. I'll, I'll, I'll give a disclaimer first. Philip Schofield is not convicted of any crimes against kids, anything of that nature. We did some research and I've released some videos on him. And you know, in one of the videos, the one million subscriber celebration video, the Jack Jones of his name is caught him in the corner of a restaurant with a kid who people have said is aged from 13 to 15. And he's, this is a kid he met in a school. I do talks in schools, drugs education. At a recent talk, as the students were leaving, a female student put her hand up and said, can I ask you a question? And I immediately turned to the contact teacher who booked me and said, can you just stand next to me right now while this kid comes and talks to me while these other students leave, which is exactly what happened. To procure a kid you've met in a school when he was 11, to then be having, taking him out for meals, it just blows my mind how this, you know, how this can happen. He may not have been convicted of a crime, um, but for the viewers watching this, would you like that to happen to your kid? I'm sure you no, wouldn't. No, absolutely. Yeah. The world's a bit messed up in some ways, isn't it? And the more the more you kind of open these the, uh, these cans of worms or uh, uh, what do you call it, unpeel these scenarios and situations that happen to people, the more you almost lose faith a little bit in humanity. You mentioned Annika Lucas. Yes. I imagine after interviewing her for the first time, you went away and it played on your mind. I interviewed a woman. Um, Annika Lucas, still to this day, 
is the is the interview that put this podcast on the map. Great, and deservedly so. And and her story, I, I, I she's one of the most remarkable human beings I've ever she's, met. And she's so spiritual, and she does a yoga and a meditation, mm. and she's an absolute wonderful human being. I interviewed a woman. We called it pure evil dad, who basically had her so he could do things to her. And I'll just leave his imagination what he did to her. Anyway, he's overseas and a family member comes to clean the house, puts on a videotape and sees a video of him doing those things to her and they go to the cops. The cops get him when he comes back and um, he sends a letter out through another prisoner saying to the family to destroy these things in the shed, but the police intercept it. So a cop opens a box in the shed and there's a diary in it. And he's reviewed all of the molestations, give them a rating and put down what date rape drugs he used on her. This is the only interview that I felt like all my blood left my body and I went freezing cold. And in the interview, I had to grab my jacket and put my jacket on. And just to think about what she's been through, mm. it makes makes what I've been through look like nothing. And she's such a spiritual person as well. Yeah. And what's sad about it is there are many more like that as well, aren't there? Care homes, it's just a system of grooming and they're making money off these kids and they're pimping them out. I mean, a great guest. Have you had John Wedger on? Who? John Wedger, ex-Met, London Met Cop. No. He was assigned to Vice. And Vice weren't doing anything. And he had hundreds of reports of kids getting pimped out from care homes um, doing the sex work. And because he filed 100 reports, they're like, what are you doing? What are you doing, John? They tried to shut him down. They started noticing the clients were wealthy people and adding those to his reports. They kept moving him around, yeah. trying to shut him down. They said, if you keep up with this, you're going to lose everything. Lose your job, your family, your income, blah, blah, blah. And he did. He lost everything. And he's pursued that mission to this day. Sex trafficking takes place in every town and every city in the country. Yeah. Uh, one of our guests, uh, Alice, uh, Alec, uh, Andrew Wallace. Yeah, I've introduced uh, him too. Yeah? Yeah, yeah. That whole human trafficking thing really bothers me and child slave labour and all that kind of stuff really mm -hmm. bothers me. And you can see it. <coughs> 500,000 kids go missing every year in America. 500,000 kids go Disgusting. missing. I remember getting there and going to the post office and the, the, the walls are just plastered with missing kids' pictures in America. But the care system seems to be because 75% of them are from the care system. Of course, yeah. So these these kids, that as soon as you go into the care system, either into you know foster care or adoption and stuff like that, it, it, it's horrific for so many of them. Yeah, and then um, the predators work in the care system and the predators know if they do these things to those kids, they're not going to be taken seriously in court because of their backgrounds and they get into criminality and drug use anyway. So um, it's strategic. That's what Savile did. Don Croft. Girls home here in Surrey and um, vulnerable people in hospitals and mental asylums, yeah. Sean, look, it's, we've been sitting talking for two hours. <laughs> oh, it's gone fast, man. <laughs> fast, it is, it's two hours almost. Wow. I could sit and talk to you probably for the rest of the evening mm. over a glass of wine maybe mm. <laughs> and the steak and chips. Mm. But 
I wonder if you'd do me the pleasure. Okay, I, I, I'm not done with you yet. Mm. I wonder if you'd come back for part two of, course, of this I'd fantastic interview. Yes. And when I'm back in the UK in August, and we can yeah. sit down again and move on to the next part and talk more about your books and the rest of your mm. journey, because you have been somebody that I've followed for a long time. Mm. I've wanted to meet you for a long time, <laughs> and every, everything I imagined you to be, yeah. you've been exactly that tonight. Oh, so I've got you. nothing but gratitude for you. Can I end on a happy note then? Go for it. Darkness. I'm having a baby. Me and, me and my partner are having a baby in August. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's going to be a boy. Your first? I have another child in America. Okay. Yes. So your little boy coming in August? Yes, Z uh, Ziggy. Oh, of course, yeah, you said the name earlier. So Ziggy's coming in August. Ziggy Hendrix. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, congratulations on that. Well, oh, hopefully it'll you. be around about the time that happens and I, I, won't, I won't be booking you in a couple of days before because the missus won't be happy. Thanks so much for your time. Oh, thank you, Spencer. Cheers. Thank <laughs> you.